when Banjo started rolling, he rolled off the bed twice and I felt like the worst mum ever. <laughs> Silence. Okay, good. I, I mean... <laughs> Hello and welcome back to Mums Group, a podcast for new mums navigating the joyful complexities of motherhood. My name's Ali Barnes. I work at a radio station called Hope 1032 in Sydney, and I'm married to a man who says he's really enjoying listening to the podcast. So, hey, babe. Uh, And I've got a son called Banjo, who's aged somewhere between 18 months and two years. Today, I want to chat about milestones. Every parent wants to know their kid is developing in a healthy way, but the calendar our kids are supposed to follow that tells us when they should be rolling over, babbling, transitioning to solid food, walking, etc., etc., it can cause a lot of anxiety. Joining me today is two mums who have experienced the journey of reconciling their kids' development with what the textbook says. I hope it's a helpful conversation. Here we go. Hi, I'm Kirsty Lawrenson. I'm married to Mark and we have two girls. Rosie has just turned three, ISO style, and Lottie is 10 months. We spend our days punctuated with dance parties, um, dressing up in tutus, all four of us, and just generally with the volume cranked as high as possible in a unit. So, sorry, Nebbers. <laughs> um, my name is Beth Brown. I am married. I have a two-year-old girl called Maisie who is just currently going through a very unusual eating habit of sort of she doesn't want anything normal like pasta she wants toothpaste and she wants wasabi and she wants vegemite on her finger and pickled ginger like she's just wow. got a mature palate crazy... yeah and also a very immature palate yeah. she doesn't eat <laughs> normal things <laughs> all right beth as a first time mom did you yeah. research the milestone calendar like did you know what to expect and when to expect it I didn't research it or read about it. I was very obsessed with sleep um, and so that I put more of my energy into routine and sleep type things and I assumed the milestones were things that would take care of themselves. That didn't worry me half as much as getting my baby to sleep properly. Um, So I think I had an app that I downloaded that kind of just was I could refer to to get a general vibe of when things should have been happening. Was that the Wonder Weeks app? Yeah, I think it was, yeah. Oh, I loved that thing. Like, it was just the best confirmation when Banjo was throwing terrible two tantrums at, like, eight mm. months. It was like, oh, it's because this is all happening for you cognitively Yeah, right totally. Now. And then um, I just think when you take the kid in for vaccinations, I had to fill out a form every time that was just, like, they gave you, like, where your kids should be at. You know, they should be, you know, the first vaccines, they should be, you know, not doing it much. But then later on it was maybe they should be sitting or rolling or muttering little words. So that was also a good sort of way for me to see where Maisie was up to. But no, I, I didn't go into much detail before she was born to sort of prepare myself for milestone stuff. That didn't seem to bother me until things didn't happen and then they bothered me more. Okay. Kirsty, you're a physio and you spent time working in paediatrics. So I'm assuming you didn't really read the baby books? Well, I'd worked in peds a couple of years before I had Rosie. So things were kind of not super fresh in my mind, but I knew that I had kind of the resources to tap into and lots of colleagues that I could message. But yeah, it was, I loved working in paediatrics. So I was really excited to see our baby hit the milestones whenever that happened and just kind of see the journey unfold. And what were those first six months like 
you know, with your first daughter, Rosie, and, and her development? Were there specific things, you know, as a physio that you were trying to do to encourage her in certain areas? Yeah, the the first six months, to be honest, are a bit of a blur. But for anyone listening who knows Rosie, she was just born a little pocket rocket, an absolute firecracker. She came early. She was tiny. She was fierce. She fought through a lot. And she was just alert and didn't sleep and was just this tiny extroverted screamer from day dot. So I had a lot of awake time to practice things with her. (laughs) But because she was a bit early and small, she had an immature gut and she kind of had reflux for want of a better description for the first eight months. So tummy time was really, really bad. And despite me kind of feeling confident with how to put a baby in tummy time, how to set them up, props, all that sort of stuff, I just couldn't get her to do it happily. And she she was one of those babies that screamed for a couple of hours every night before eventually going to sleep so things like rolling and sitting um it was really hard to get her to do what I thought her body could do or what I was excited to try and teach her to do because her little gut was just in a bit of pain and part of you know a reflux baby's posturing is they tend to arch their back and fight a lot of handling and movement Were you concerned or did you figure she'll work it out in time once, you know, her little body develops and her gut can cope? I was confused. I think I wasn't so much concerned as in, oh, my gosh, my baby's delayed. Um, It was just more like, oh, why can't I help my baby? You know, I have the skills, I have the knowledge, I have the resources. You know, I messaged them, my physio friends. I remember at one point being like, "What, what else can I do? But, yeah, it was just really confusing. I just felt really disempowered. Like I I couldn't help my baby feel happy and I couldn't kind of soothe her issues and I couldn't help her get into positions that she might actually be able to be more social or play a little bit more happily instead of just lying on her back. (laughs) Yeah. Beth, when did you start to worry about Maisie and not crawling or, or walking maybe being an issue? I didn't really worry that much because I personally had been a bum shuffler. I'd never crawled. And then I was a late walker as well. I started walking at 18 months. So I was able to look at my own self and go, I'm fine. So I made the assumption that Maisie was also going to be fine. I think my worry came about more because of other people's worry. Like as in um, there were people who would say, you know, you really like you have to actually force her to do tummy time like because it's so 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 critical for strength in the future and so um I would think oh really I mean like all kids will get there eventually like they you know you don't have um five-year-olds that can't hold their heads up you know you, you do you do develop the muscles at some point so I think it was other people's worry um that sort of started to make me concerned so I guess maybe maybe by the time she was eight months and still showing no signs of crawling or moving. She was just sitting. She was quite content just to sit. I was like, oh, I would like to encourage, like to help her to get going for her sake, like to enjoy life more. Mm. Like as Kirsty was saying, it's like, you know that like for them to start being able to go and reach things is, is cool. Um, yeah. And so 
I guess there was a part of me that would try and put things further away and she'd just look at me like I was an idiot. Um, <laughs> she's like, well, now I don't want that thing anymore and you can get it yourself if you want it. And So no no issues yeah. cognitively, like <laughs> a development yeah, right. spot Although on. She was in control. <laughs> and then I think it was just that um, people, a lot of people started to say that if a baby doesn't crawl, that they like that those those sort of connecting of synapses that you need to do in order to coordinate that movement of like one arm, one leg, one arm, one leg, I think, um, actually ends up being tied to developmental delays mentally later in life. Like some people would say that. So um, then I was like, oh man, like, so if I'm not forcing her to get on her tummy and forcing her to crawl, am I essentially not, like am I putting mean, her in a position where later in life she maybe will have issues with learning and I'll go, was that my fault? in her issues with movement so yeah the, the stress didn't come from within myself it came from other people's voices and I think she did end up sort of bum shuffling around almost one which is late to be sort of moving yourself from a sort of seated position to I want to now pursue something further away from me and then she didn't end up walking until 21 months so um, once she passed the 18 month mark and I was like well this is when I was walking it was a bit like now like okay what's going on here um, and we did end up going to the doctor and she did end up recommending we would go to a physio the physio ended up recommending we go to a specialist and um, the specialist wasn't particularly concerned but the physio did help us with sort of certain exercises to encourage walking and I think again it's like well I don't know if it was necessary entirely because it kind of just frustrated her and distressed her and then I don't know was I pushing her too hard but then people would say if you don't push her she might never do it and I'm like really she'll never walk I don't know if that's like true I don't know so it's just I feel like I feel like if I had lived in the middle of like the country and there was no one around I probably would have just not worried about it but it was more like being around other mums and parks and everything inside to think, oh, my gosh, maybe I should worry. Yeah. And, I mean, her bum shuffle, that was quicker than most toddler runs. <laughs> like, she <laughs> was amazing. She went over some videos last night. And I'm like, wow, because I've, I've already forgotten now that she's walking so well. I'm like, man, that was actually extremely impressive. The only downside <laughs> of it was she ruined a lot of pants. I just remember the holes from you oh, know scooting what, what on the pants today. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Just the gravel. <laughs> That's right. So uh, the process of, of seeing the physio, you know, that that could sometimes be distressing. But was it a quick fix, or from that first appointment to her walking sort of independently, a bit more confidently, did that take long? Um, well, I think because we ended up only going to the physio around 19 months, it was probably like it was going to happen pretty soon anyway. So it felt like it was a reasonably quick process, but perhaps it was always going to be. I think the really interesting thing was that the physio diagnosed Maisie with fear of movement, um, which I'd never heard of before. But she basically said that having watched the way Maisie did things and, you know, carried herself and she thought that she feared doing something that felt uncomfortable unusual for her and so I, I think actually like Maisie's kind of personality was something which is a little bit timid in general like doesn't really like loud noises and um, she's quite shy around people initially and all that sort of stuff I think perhaps that was playing into her 
her just um, unwillingness to try something in case it didn't work. Yeah. Um, so the because the physio did say that we then were able to try and create an environment of encouraging Maisie within Maisie's personality rather than just pushing her as if she was any old kid that didn't mind falling over and getting back up again because she did mind. So I think the physio did help us to maybe just come up with a few strategies that were Maisie sort of orientated and um, we did bribe her to do things which actually worked you know like we'd hold out believe it or not, a piece of pickled ginger um <laughs> you know like one step away and she would she would try for it so um that was something the physio encouraged after a while not she didn't yeah. use the word bribe um but she would just say like try and create rewards and and also she because Maisie obviously hadn't crawled she she was lacking some muscle tone and so you know to actually for her to put her foot foot in front of the other one there was just a weakness to her body. So we then tried to encourage her to build her strength, perhaps not always in a walking way, but in other ways. Um, and so I think those three things really did mean that the process probably was quite quick. But like I said, we went very late, all things considered. So perhaps it would have been around the same time anyway. I'm not sure, but mm. we were glad to have done it. And also just for someone to say, look, I've seen babies like this before and you know, I wouldn't be overly concerned. Mm-hmm. And we got her, we got x-rays done to check her hips were okay. And mm-hmm. yeah, and the specialist also said, look, I think she's, a, I think she's on the edge. She's got to walk any day. Um, mm-hmm. And there's nothing, I can't see, said I can't see anything anatomically wrong with her. So it's just, it's just her. Yeah. it It is really interesting, you know, in how a kid's personality impacts their development. You know, Banjo mm-hmm. on the flip side, really outgoing adventurous risk-taking child uh, and he was walking at 10 months and his hammering skills are so good right now I'm thinking of getting him an ABN like he is a physical little dude that's a big part of his personality but he is so uninterested in sitting still and working on a project for more than 60 seconds or or even using his words like when I say honey um can you say toast or or can you say bottle he's like no <laughs> I'm like, oh, that's a and good then word. He throws the bottle yeah, at you. Exactly. <laughs> but yeah, it's like what they're interested in, they work at. Has that been your experience, Kirsty? Like, have you seen how your kids and their personalities impacted their development? Yeah, definitely. I feel like there was this this moment of sweet, sweet hindsight for us when Rosie was no longer a baby <laughs> and uh, she was a toddler. And we felt like, oh, yeah, her whole baby year makes complete sense because once she developed her large vocabulary and could tell us what she was thinking and what she wanted, it was like, no wonder you cried so much when you're a baby. You just really, really wanted to communicate. Mm. And she's always been a very, very spirited child, very strong-willed. Right now she's sitting next to me and refusing to move away. <laughs> <laughs> Darling, you got to go out with daddy, okay? I think when you're a first-time mum, you're in this fishbowl with other first-time mums, especially in like a mother's group context. And even if you're not intending to, you're kind of always comparing your baby to other people's babies. Mm. You're always having conversations about, so what are you guys doing and how asleep and how settling and that sort of thing. And Rosie was always just an outlier. And it wasn't until I found friends who had 
babies who are very similar in personality or older children who had been very similar as babies that her whole first year and the things that were really hard for us were kind of validated. Mm. It was really helpful. So <laughs> sweet, sweet hindsight, a lot of things, including Rosie reaching some gross motor milestones were slow or tricky to kind of facilitate because she just wanted to do it in her own time. And she, she's never been a child who has been very kind of pliable. Yeah. <laughs> um, whereas Charlotte or Lottie, our second is the complete opposite. And that was also quite validating. A lot of people say, Oh, do you think it's cause you're like a more relaxed second time mom? And I'm like, well, I'm sure there's an element of that, but they're also just such different personalities. Lottie's just very happy-go-lucky. She's just gotten up and moved. I Even when I didn't want her to move, I was like, <laughs> I would be really happy for you to just lie there for a couple more months and not be on the move and picking up Barbie toys mm. and putting them in the mouth. She's just kind of developed and she hasn't had as much time from me. I haven't been able to devote any, you know, <laughs> hours to playing with her quietly on the floor with baby appropriate toys she's been playing with lego since the moment she could put it in her mouth <laughs> or duplo sorry for any concerned parents um so i'm a big believer from my personal experience that personality makes a big difference to how a child reaches milestones and what milestones they put all their energy into and also between my two girls i went back and worked in pediatrics again and I just saw so many babies who were really similar to Rosie. And I was able to say to the parents, hey, like from my personal experience, my daughter was quite similar in personality and, and she, she was like to do this or that. And look at me, you know, I'm a physiotherapist working in pediatrics. You would think that if anyone was going to be able to make a child do something, it would be me, but I couldn't. So it's not you. Mm. It's not your fault. It's not that you didn't do enough. It's each child is unique. And we need to take with a grain of salt all of this kind of normative data and all baby books and all the well-meaning friends and just kind of go, hey, yeah, maybe a child might sit on average at six months, but my baby isn't. And there's going to be genetic factors and flexibility and personality and environment, all of those things in play as well. That's such a, a great insight and encouragement. And I wonder, especially, you know, you know after the experience you've had, but also being a second time mum, how you share things with other new mums. Like I remember when Banjo began to walk, it was amazing. You know, he was strutting around like he owned the place and I had video of his first few steps and I sent them to everyone in my contact list. Like it was just an exciting day. <laughs> but there's this fine line in celebrating those big moments and fueling the fire of comparison. And I wonder with my second would I be more conscious of that um, in that, you know, they might not develop early or, or what does that even mean? Um, I don't know. And when I think back, is there some pride tied up in all of this, which is just so ridiculous because it's not about you. It's not about you as a mom and what you've introduced them to. It is, like you said, they're doing it in their own time and their personality plays a big part of it. Yeah. Totally. I mean, I reckon um, because Basie was so slow to walk and a lot of people would say, oh, wow, so how old is she? And I'd say, you know, maybe 18 months. Oh, she still can't walk. I remember just thinking I'd jump straight in with, yes, but she's extremely intelligent. Yeah. Like you should, you know, like <laughs> you should see the way that she plays with paper. It's, I think it's like almost like she's a four-year-old inside. Like I just, I felt like I had to justify her lack of walking yes. with all the things she was really good at. <laughs> it's funny because... 
you don't know what you don't know, right? Mm. So you don't get sweet hindsight on the things that you don't experience. And we can experience things with other people and we can be empathetic and kind of live their lives with them. But in the end, we kind of, we base a lot on our own personal experience. And I think sometimes we fall into this culture of feeling like our baby's achievements are our achievements. Mm. And I remember that conversation of like, oh, wow, they're crawling early. Like, good boy. Wow. Well done, mum and dad. Like, isn't he smart? And our babies are just babies. Like they're all created in God's image. They are all valuable, regardless of what milestones they achieve. They all have their own little personalities, their own little interests. Um, Rosie was like the fine motor queen as well. Like she would happily sit and play with teeny tiny things and was just like, no, I don't want to crawl. Why would I crawl when I can see people and play with toys? But I think we need to be mindful with each other that, yes, let's celebrate when our baby walks. It's so exciting. Like Lottie took her first steps two nights ago and within a minute I sent it to our, you know, the aunts and uncles and the grandparents. It's so exciting. I just told everyone on this podcast. (laughs) But... It's not like, oh my gosh, my baby is amazing and I am doing such a great job as a parent. It's just like we can celebrate all of these wonderful things that we see our babies learn because that is such an amazing part of being a parent. But the value that we want to place on our children and that we want them to hear us praising them for, I believe should be, you know, their godliness, their kindness, their um, friendliness, their ability to treat someone with love and if we constantly place value on our children's achievements say you know good boy good girl you did this you are amazing at this you are the best at this then they're going to grow up striving for those things because that's where they get their sense of love and achievement and success and their sense of identity as well so trying to place value on our children's character above what their bodies or their minds can do and I think also Ali like just you were saying that maybe um celebrating publicly can foster this idea that milestones are really important and that it might make it hard for other people I, I think I don't think that not celebrating them is the way to change that culture like I just think yeah. that that's sort of got to come about from a different way because your kid's going to continue to grow up and if your kid win, get, comes first in the swimming carnival and you want to tell people, you know, you don't go, oh, I'm not going to tell anyone because their kid swims really badly. Mm-hmm. Like, like there's a sense in which it's right and normal to celebrate. Yeah. Um, yeah. I just think like, yeah, I think you're right that we, there's a, there's a, can be a negative culture around comparison, but I just think that holding back from celebrating good things is not the answer. Mm. What about the good intentions? Like, what about talking to friends about their kids' development? Like particularly for you, Kirsty, being a physio, <laughs> like if you notice something is way off, do you say something or are you really, you know, conscious and worried about putting unnecessary stress on the mum? I think um, I'm sure you can kind of relate to this in terms of like being a healthcare professional, Beth, but I think I try and be a physio when I'm at work and then just be Kirsty when I'm at home and Um, my close friends who know what I do um, if they come to me and ask me questions about their child I'm I'm always more than happy to answer but I try and draw the line at if it's just general advice and it's something that doesn't seem concerning I'm happy to give them information 
but I'll always try and point someone towards seeking help through like an appropriate channel, through a child and family nurse or the GP, get a referral to someone if there's any concern because there's a duty of care for me where I don't want to say, oh, yep, I'll have a quick look at your child in the playground while we're having a lovely chat and we're distracted and then imagine if I missed something and that child never got screened by someone who was, you know, in the zone, didn't have any kind of social bias. So there's plenty of times that I've given lots of tips to friends, kind of like you were suggesting, Beth, like these are some exercises that can help build some core strength or um, it looks like X, Y, Z, you can give this a go. But I definitely draw the line at only if asked. Yeah. <laughs> if it was someone who I didn't know well and the child was showing some really concerning signs, I just feel a bit awkward about kind of instigating a conversation that someone doesn't want to have, especially if I don't hold much value in their life. Like why, why should they work on my opinion if they don't know me? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, but it is it's a gray zone. It's a bit tricky sometimes. Um, yeah. I think just like Kirsty was saying, like I, as a registered nurse, if I'm around the streets and I see someone with a, um, a growth on their face, I'm going to assume that they know it's there. Um, and so I guess it's the same with kids. Like if you see a kid doing something, you're going to assume the mum, I'm going to always assume that the mum already knows what's going on with their own child better than I ever would. The same way that when Maisie was not walking, people would say, oh, your child doesn't walk. And I wasn't like, oh, doesn't she? Like, I'm like, I'm aware of where she's up to with this. With friends though, like, um, like if I'm hanging around you, Ali, quite a bit and there is a growth on your face and I am unsure that you actually realise that it could be something to be concerned about because I know you really well and I know what you're like. We've had sort of conversations that I perhaps would think that there might be room for me to say, hey, have you wondered about that? Like, do you think you might want to get that checked or something? But, like, I would have to do it with with real, like, confidence and security of the relationship that I had with you and that you would know my intentions. And so I think, like, you've just got to be really careful with kids as well because most of the time the parents know what's going on and most of the time well-meaning bits of advice are received as a bit of a like mind your own business so I just think that most people know what's going on with their kids yeah I'm just gonna put it out here for anyone who's listening if you're a backseat driver speak up if you think that I haven't seen the person I'm about to hit like I really appreciate (laughs) unsolicited (laughs) advice if it's going to help so if you think there's something wrong with any of my children, then <laughs> please let me know because there's a good chance that I haven't noticed and I'd prefer to just be sure. But don't you think there's like a, don't you think there's like, what if, um, like, what if Banjo is doing something repeatedly and yes. it's actually causing you a bit of distress that this thing is taking place and you've got people coming up to you and saying, I'm noticing this. And you st- I think it does put a bit of stress on the mum to be like, Oh, I, I know. Like, yeah. is that all you can see? I don't know. Just can you speak into that? For me, I think commenting on behavior stings a bit. So yeah, okay. Banjo is really getting into biting other kids and I am not sure of how to handle it well. And when, when I ask for advice, I really appreciate it. But, you know, I've had people say, oh, you're, you're too soft on him or, you know, you need to bite him back or you need to um, hit him, give him a smack, like you need to teach him boundaries. That kind of more intrusive suggestions 
I know that, yeah. I think that makes me feel like a bad mum, but when it's a physical development and that's stuff that I that feels much more on him and his development than on how I can teach and help him understand boundaries. I know I, I, I'd be happy for people to speak up about that. Um, just especially as a new mum, I think maybe with the second, I kind of I'll know more to of what to expect. But with the first time, I'm pretty clueless. So unless you know, a mum's group really helped because I could see what the other kids were doing. And so I had a bit of a gauge of what he should be up to. But because I hadn't read the book, so I wasn't really sure of, you know, the best way to start solids or, um, oh, he should be having more words in his vocab by now. Like, yeah. But the behavior stuff, I think you got to be a bit more sensitive and conscious of how that's going to be received. Mm. Mm. Yeah, makes sense. I think this is where we could also just say that we're so blessed to have, a, well, I'm very biased, but a great healthcare system. Yeah. <laughs> and there are child and family health nurses who, you know, their role is to do the screen, the, the questionnaire that you mentioned, Beth, but to screen babies at different ages, to talk to parents, to maybe bring up any concerns and refer those children on to ask the, ask the parents the hard questions and to not have to risk, you know, a social friendship because of it. So while I think there's still a place for just mentioning things to our close friends or bringing things up or having all of those conversations where we will kind of compare our kids a bit, I think also just recognising that there are professionals who are paid to do this mm. and that's their job. They're really helpful. They're a great source mm. of knowledge. So if in doubt, there's no harm ever with your kids in just seeking a professional opinion. Mm. Just backtracking a little bit, just with like solids, because that's a really big milestone development. And I think a lot of mums or even parents are quite anxious about that time, particularly because it seems to come around just as you've started to like master breastfeeding. And then now you've got to figure out this other thing. Um, And I think even more so, you are looking at, when other kids are doing it. So when others start solids, you kind of feel this pressure, like maybe you should too. Did, did you feel that pressure? Did you kind of know instinctively when your child was up to that? I didn't feel pressure. I looked, I Googled it, I think, and I think they said you could probably start around four months and I think they gave a few suggestions of what you could give them. And I think because I was so obsessed with sleep and getting my kids to sleep, I'd also read things that like a kid with a slightly fuller tummy sleeps better. So at three months and 30 days, I think I I did it one day early, (laughs) I... um just shoved a little bit of puree in her mouth and she kind of liked it. And so I just started doing little bits of puree. I mean, that's how it started at least. I thought if I can get some more food in her, she might sleep better. Mm. And so for me, it was like I started from the earliest point that I possibly could and she didn't reject fruit. And so I just did that for a while. Yeah, because I think it's just one of those milestones where you're so involved in it. So it's not like babbling or smiling or beginning to crawl that's them figuring that out but it's very much wrapped up in you holding a spoon to their mouth so there does feel like there is a sense of pressure but yeah I think for me and I knew the broad guideline was somewhere between four and six months as well and that they should be sitting up on their own right because it's a choking risk I found with Banjo there were very clear signs like he was reaching 
for my meat pie. <laughs> and for like weeks before that, he had been like salivating, just watching me. But like when he reached out for it, I was like, all right, I'll just let you have a little taste or a little lick. And he really only went for the tomato sauce and still kind of goes for that now. But um, yeah, you, you do get a sense when your kid's ready. Hey. We had a, a slightly unexpected journey with that because um Rosie she she spewed like nothing else from day dot like I can't even describe how much spew we had all over our place how many changes of clothes we went through she was just this teeny tiny petite baby who had this amazing ability to fire hose it's funny how um, like previous to becoming a mom you run as far away from vomit as possible but as soon as you become a mom you like find yourself running to it and trying to catch it it. (laughs) so she was also in hospital with some unknown favors at two months and um through the process of kind of that admission and her reflux kind of symptoms we learned that having an immature gut was a thing <laughs> and even though she wasn't technically preemie she was just a little bit early and um, a pediatrician that we saw said you know she's probably just got an immature gut and so from a little bit of reading I decided I didn't want to give her any solids until she was at least six months or six months and a couple of weeks I was actually not keen to introduce anything that kind of might upset her more um, so I did try some purees at five months something just because I was interested and she was also interested and classic Rosie she wouldn't have a bar of it if I put the spoon down and let her pick it up she'd go for it but it I think I tried a couple of days in a row and by the third day she was just flat out refusing and I was like well I'm not ready for this battle and I think I got her vaccinations spoke to the child and family health nurse for that you know six month checkup routine checkup and was talking to her about it and she was amazing she was like oh it sounds like you know maybe your child might be more of a baby led weaner I was like what is that yeah (laughs) and she said there's this great Facebook group and kind of introduced the whole concept to me and as soon as I heard what it was oh I think maybe I'd heard about it during the solids talk that they run at the um, health center but when I looked into it I was like yeah that's my girl and she just, she was a bulldozer with food as soon as we kind of gave her the reins with baby led weaning. And there's a few different kind of criteria to check that a child's ready, like being able to sit, even if supported in a high chair, but upright, being able to bring food to their mouth. The gag reflex has gone. It's, you know, the swallow reflex is there. So a few different things, but once she was able to, get the food herself and eat she has just never looked back and to this day she she eats like a teenage boy like she (laughs) she eats so much (laughs) and she's so petite and so with Lottie our second who's 10 months we just followed the same path and I kind of loved baby led weaning by then felt like a big advocate of it and it's just super convenient super 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 messy but I don't really mind the mess. So I was happy to give the reins to <laughs> the girls and not battle them for the spoon. <laughs> I think the first few months for me, like the f- sort of month four to month seven or something were the kind of fun ones because you know that she's getting all her nutrients from the breast milk. And so you can kind of just play around with the other stuff and you're not like too worried. She doesn't really take to anything 
and you, but she's feeding regularly. You're not too concerned. I think it got. I think it's gotten harder and harder because obviously um, when they wean and, and Maisie weaned herself at ten months, then it becomes kind of like more important to be doing the food thing. And I found her to be on one hand really experimental and fun with food like even what I was saying at the very beginning like unusual flavors Vegemite like straight Vegemite and wasabi and coffee like wasabi? she would just put her finger in my coffee wasabi peas um you know so in one sense she's very creative but in another sense she's extremely fussy um and really unlike Kirsty and your kids she hates mess so like if she gets a little bit of food on her finger she cries out for like a wiper because she wants it off. So she's more like a, like a sort of, she, her high chair is more like a throne and she's like this <laughs> queen that sits there and like I have to bring the spoon to her mouth and make sure it doesn't get on her lips, you know. And so um, it's hard to trial new foods with her because it's just got to be a specific flavour, a specific texture. And so I think at the moment the thing I find that's worrying me the most is is not it's just that she's she's just got a very small group of foods that she is willing to eat and the thing is I think overall it's okay because there is a little bit of everything in there but it just it means mealtimes are extremely repetitive for her mm. um in that it's always um it's either like this sort of vegetable thing um and with ham she just loves ham and maybe some blueberries and then we might be able to alternate the next night with she might do a scrambled egg and then more ham and then strawberries. But like we kind of rotate the same two or three meals every night. And so I just think um, for me, the thing I'm finding hard at the moment is just trying to introduce it to new things, especially if we find ourselves out and about and I don't have my normal things from home with me Mm. to try and get her to have any sort of meal. I have to sort of try and find things in line with what she's used to. Um, And often that means she doesn't eat anything at all because it's just unfamiliar. So yeah, I think the first few months were kind of fun. And then it was kind of good when she started um, trying a few things and now we're at this sort of stuck stage where um, you know even if I, I bought her today a blueberry Danish I mean she eats blueberries and it's a Danish and she looked at me and then she looked at it and then she licked it and then she sniffed it and then she just said no um, you know it's like it's just or there are just give her the wasabi just, Beth just give her the yeah, wasabi right. and let her be happy so and then that when, I think that's when you start to compare like just even listening to to you guys just like you've both got these kids that just shove things in their mouths and in some senses that might be annoying for you guys I don't know because like you're sitting there eating your lunch and they're like stealing it off your plate but on the other hand I think to have kids that are willing to just like to eat pretty much anything they're given is is a bit less stressful or I don't know what do you think? Beth it reminds me of our conversation before about kind of touching on pride and how we celebrate things because Rosie has always just been a great eater and I guess Lottie too and it's one of those things where people would be like wow how amazing like great job and I was like it's just them like she was she was a really bad sleeper like I won't go into it on this episode we'd need a whole episode but she was an awful sleeper you don't get everything you know she Mm, she didn't sleep well but she ate and I was so thankful to God that he gave me that because yeah, totally. I know that I know that there are kids out there who don't eat well and don't sleep well either and that must be incredibly difficult so there are always swings and roundabouts but I think it's one of those situations where it's not all up to us and just also um, when it comes to milestones one thing that I found really 
helpful and liberating as a physio, but also as a parent is just thinking about how like sensory processing comes into milestone achievement for kids, like eating and sleeping and fine motor and gross motor. You know, I have a three-year-old, so we're at the age where we're in in lockdown, we've been doing as much sensory play, you know, a bucket of mush outside with a few toys in it to try and get me five minutes while I prepared lunch or something like that. And Rosie doesn't love some textures and I'm learning a lot about, you know, her sensory sensitivities to different things. Like, God forbid we go into a public toilet with a dryer, she will have a meltdown. And that's been hard for me to comprehend and to process because that's not me but that's her and I think like eating you know a a child's sensory system and how sensitive they are to to sensory input whether that be through their bodies or their ears or their mouth or their tongue you know tongue is a muscle too that impacts so many kind of milestone achievements or the way we see eating or sleeping or moving come about. So yeah, it kind of comes back to how our kids are so individual and there's so many moving pieces at work there. Mm, Yeah. Well, I think that's a really great place to leave it. Um, And we talked a lot about food and movement and not a lot about speech. Do we do much about speech? Oh yeah. Well, tell me like, what was your experience with Maisie starting to talk? Well, the thing is, like Maisie was a super slow walker, but she was a she was a quick talker. Like she did baby sign and she communicated um, with words pretty early on. And now, at just two and like three months, she's you know she's just got thousands of words and she's communicating. You know, and with like she can say Volkswagen and she can say <laughs> like um, <laughs> bushwalking. Like she's just she's like speech is a really is like a f- simple and fun one for us. I've had a different experience with both girls. Rosie was the same as Maisie Beth by the sounds of it. She was saying hat at eight months and she has been like nonstop talking since then. You can probably hear her in the background. Um, <laughs> and I'm a, I'm a really firm believer that if a child isn't showing interest in crawling or walking, they're going to channel that mental energy into other things like fine motor or speech or social and I've seen that personally and then also in my work environment. Um, whereas Lottie, she's just been a mover and a groover. She's interested in fine motor, but she won't sit still as long as Rosie did at this age. And I think that's partly environmental. She's got Rosie to watch and to crawl after and to entertain her. But her language is slower to develop. It's probably still average, but I remember with Rosie, a good friend suggesting like if, you're, if your child isn't making some of those repetitive syllable sounds just to practice with them and give them the space to practice like ba, 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 da, 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 da. So I've been trying to do that a bit with Lottie and also focusing on not only their verbal communication but their social communication. So a lot of kids might not actually be saying words or stringing together words at two years for example but they might be pointing towards the car and saying something in gibberish that's very socially appropriate or um, a parent might say hey we're gonna go outside can you get your shoes and they go oh blah 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 blah," and then they go and get their shoes and bring them so um Mm, i think people can take comfort that there's social communication (laughs) and also verbal communication 
We found that music was really helpful for Maisie early on because um, she likes music, but also she wanted the same songs over and over again. And so that repetition, which you don't really get with speech of hearing the same song over and over and over over again, meant that some of her first words were, well, most of her first words were from songs because that's what she was hearing constantly. Um, So so that's a good thing to do. Like I try and read banjo a different book every night and he just wants the same one with the fire engine <laughs> so I should just give in to that because that's really helpful I was always told that you should repeat something for a kid as often as they want it oh, um, yes. because uh, they if they latch onto something then just go and go and go and so I found that has meant that yeah Maisie has I think um, learnt more words that way I, I mean it makes me want to strangle something when she asks for the same song a hundred times in a row driving from um, you know wherever Um, but I try and say hey she's got a really small brain and she's learning and she wants it again for some reason I was going to again and again until she says I'm done with that one now for some reason I I don't know if I heard it but I I repeat as often as she asks for it so yeah I reckon read Banjo the same book every night until you just can't cope anymore yeah okay I loved what you said, Kirstie, about that social communication because Banjo's not, well, he doesn't have a very big vocab and he's not that interested in having a go. So when I'm asking him, hey, can you say this? And he's like, nah. Um, But I don't have any fears about his communication because he is vocal in other ways. He wants to know the name of everything. So he's constantly pointing like, you know, what colour is that? What do you call that? I think he's always developed physically a lot faster and been interested yeah. in that. And I've just thought, you know what, I'll just wait and see how things go and haven't been too concerned. And it's nice hearing that social communication is a good good cue and indicator of their development as well because I thought it was all about the words. But, hmm, very interesting. I guess the reality, as documented by scientists and experts all over, is that babies arrive at development milestones at different times and in different orders i think it's okay to be concerned about your baby's development it just goes to show you know your love and your care but i don't think we should be crippled by our anxiety and comparison like lay off google just go see the experts if you're worried early intervention is key on most things so you know speak up and if they say no you're being overly concerned excellent what a great outcome Um, but yeah if you are worried go see someone Thank you so much for joining us for Mums Group. Uh, If you want to share your experience, join us on Facebook. Just search Mums Group Pod, pod being short for podcast. Uh, And if you've got time, I know mums have so much spare time, uh, but would love you to give it a rating or a review. It just helps other mums out there who might be feeling a bit lonely and isolated, particularly through this COVID-19 period, feel connected to other mums. But until next time, bye. 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 Thank you.